Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, homelessness is on the rise in Minnesota. An in-depth look at the Minnesota Twins as the 2019 season gets underway, and spring is prime time for sappers statewide. But first... Cell phones, guns, health care, the state budget, and snow days all on the docket this week as the pace of the 2019 legislative session ramped up. MN's Bill Werner joins us with a recap. Scott, the Minnesota House and Senate now have to work out a compromise on prohibiting cell phone use by drivers except in hands-free mode. That after the Senate passed its bill on a strong bipartisan vote this week. Republican Dan Hall from Burnsville voted yes, but with reservations. I don't like the way this is taking away my freedom, but it needs to be done for the sake of so many that are dying because others are being selfish. The bill's author, Senator Scott Newman from Hutchinson, says... This isn't a personal liberty issue. This is a public safety issue. The Senate bill allows GPS use and cell phones could be tucked under a headscarf or other clothing. The House bill has exceptions for one-touch activation and for emergencies. Governor Tim Walz's view? I'm kind of a zero-sum on this, that I think no-touch is maybe the way to go. But as I said earlier, the House and Senate would work. They have worked in this case of of going through the process. Uh, They'll get me something that I'm sure I can sign. Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka this week said the Minnesota Senate will have hearings on criminal background check and red flag gun bills if the Democrat-controlled Minnesota House passes them first. We're saying to the House, well, show us that you can actually pass these bills and that there's actually bipartisan support. We don't think there is. House Democratic Majority Leader Ryan Winkler responded. If Republicans want to have hearings on gun violence prevention for the sake of demonstrating how much they oppose it, I don't think it's helpful. If they are having a hearing to find out if there's any common ground, then I think we could uh, see that as a very encouraging sign. Also this week, top Democrats, including Governor Walls, vowed to fight the Trump administration's renewed attempts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act even as the president promised a far better plan if the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down Obamacare in its entirety, as the Trump administration is now pushing for. We are going to fix health care. We're going to fix a lot of problems that nobody else was able to do. Governor Walls responds, Minnesotans and Americans have absolutely come to believe in protections on pre-existing conditions, covering children on their parents' policies until age 26, and no lifetime cap on coverage. This uh, reckless attempt, this attack on Americans' health care, will fail because there is nothing uh, being proposed that will fix it. Health care also a major issue at the Minnesota legislature, perhaps the most contentious and complicated issue that lawmakers have before them this session. Let me try to give you an idea of how entangled this whole debate is. A tax on health care providers that helps fund Minnesota Care, the state-run health insurance program for low-income Minnesotans, that tax is set to expire, and Governor Walls wants it renewed, which Republicans strongly oppose. The provider tax is not going to expire. Walls said this week to Republicans. Well, he's going to have to get that moved through the Senate then and 
I see some hurdles there. Ted Republican Senator Michelle Benson from Ham Lake. The governor warned Republicans he will not horse trade for the provider tax. Do not come to me and try and leverage a corporate tax cut or something on the backs of Minnesotans because I'm not interested in that. The governor not only wants the provider tax renewed, but also proposes any Minnesotan, regardless of income, be allowed to buy their health insurance through state-run Minnesota Care. Definitely not. We believe the private sector is where we make the uh, solutions here or, or solve it. He says Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, whose Senate Republicans are pushing for another round of state-paid reinsurance to hold down increases in health care premiums. The governor says that does not address the underlying problem, the cost of health care. But it appears Walls is open to at least discussing the reinsurance option with Republicans. However, if I'm saying let's see where reinsurance is at, I want to hear back. Okay, let's see what we can do on transportation to meet you halfway. It has been no, 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 no. The governor talking about a gas tax increase, and Republican Senator Julie Rosen from Vernon Center says about that. To be honest, that's a non-starter. That, that is not going anywhere. And it's undeniable that reinsurance has worked. Democrats in the Minnesota House rolled out their state budget proposal this week, and it's even more aggressive than Governor Walz's plan in key areas. $900 million more for E-12 education, $300 million more for higher education, including a tuition freeze at all public institutions in the state. House Speaker Melissa Hortman. We're more aggressive on tax fairness so that we can be more aggressive about investing in education. Democrats are talking about plugging what they call corporate tax loopholes. Dilworth Representative Paul Marquardt. I don't think a business and a farmer should be paying more in taxes because some company is able to use gimmicks to shelter their profits in Bermuda. Businesses are trying to hang on, and I think it's unfair to keep piling on top of them. Republican Senator Julie Rosen. No tax increases. The main theme of the state budget outline that Senate Republicans unveiled this week. Provider tax goes away. There is no new gas tax increase, no new tab fee increase. No fee increases, which you see everywhere in the House uh, version and the the governor version. Majority Leader Gazelka says Senate Republicans are open to individual income tax cuts, including the tax on Social Security. Tax Committee Chair Lino Lake Senator Roger Chamberlain adds. We plan on substantial tax relief as much as we can get to Minnesotans. School districts this year only would not have to make up extra snow days forced by bad weather. Under a bill that the Minnesota Senate and House both passed this week and sent to Governor Walls, Stillwater Democrat Shelley Christensen says... The most important thing that we need to do for our kids in school is to keep them safe. And when school is canceled for safety reasons, we're going to have to give some leeway to school districts. Mazeppa Republican Steve Draskowski responded, snow days are made up at the end of the school year in May or June. Therefore, the argument that this bill is coming forward to make kids safe is empty and it's inaccurate. This bill basically tells the teachers union that their their members can have the days off from the snow days and don't have to go to work for them, but get paid the money by the taxpayers anyway. In the meantime, the kids of Minnesota are getting ripped off. We asked the Education Minnesota Teachers Union to respond, but they declined. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Your surgery is over. Oh, it's over? What happened? 
Hi, Mr. Detweiler. Dr. Newman here. You have a new knee. It went great. You'll be up and around before you know it. And it's all because of you. Uh, what did I do? You were captain of Team Detweiler. You told us everything we needed to know. Your medical history, your allergies and prescription meds. You asked me tons of questions. What your options to surgery might be. What to expect during recovery. You even asked me how many knee replacements I've already done. Huh. I guess I did kind of run the whole operation, didn't I? Mr. Detweiler, we couldn't have done it without you. Patient safety. It takes a team. And patient involvement is key. A public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. With more tips at orthoinfo.org slash patient safety. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The number of people experiencing homelessness is up across Minnesota. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. After a decline between 2012 and 2015, the overall number of people experiencing homelessness increased to peak 2012 levels. Joining me now to talk about the study is Rebecca Sales, a research scientist at Wilder Research. Every three years since 1991, um, and that's partially just because it is a big lift in terms of planning and analysis and all of that. So, um, but the most recent study was this year, so October 25th of 2018 um, was the actual study day. And now that we're getting our results out, you know, the big things that we're seeing are overall across the state, there was a 10% increase in the number of people who are experiencing homelessness and that's up 10% over 2015. Uh, We saw that increase all throughout the state. So whether we're looking at, you know, the seven-county metro or greater Minnesota, we did see overall increases throughout the state. Uh, Some of the notable things in terms of age, we saw adults overall increasing um, with older adults, which would be 55, um, 55 years of age or older, seeing the largest increase at 25%, but we also saw increase um, of adults aged 25 to 54. And then we also saw increases in those staying um, not in shelter, so that could be in a car, public transportation, outside, or um, doubled up. So that was a big increase that we saw uh, over 2015. But some of the good things that, that we're seeing as well that are kind of you know, promising when we look at the data is we're seeing uh, a 5% decrease in families who are experiencing homelessness, as well as um, the number of kids and youth age 24 and younger has um, remained pretty steady since 2015. And you know, Rebecca, when when we go out and do this study, do we look into, I guess, uh, what has led to these folks uh, becoming homeless? Are there any, you know, factors that are incorporated into this? Yeah, absolutely. So the the way that we collect data is by doing a face-to-face interview with people who are experiencing homelessness. The face-to-face interviews are done um, both using staff from homeless service provider organizations as well as volunteers we recruit. And that interview can take anywhere from a half hour to 45 minutes. And the reason for that is we really ask um, a huge variety and a huge depth of questions. So 
exactly to your point. We ask questions that may give us an idea of, you know, what contributed to somebody being homeless. You know, was it something in their childhood, something more recent? We understand somebody's experience with being homeless, you know, how many times they've been homeless, when they were first homeless, uh, as well as maybe some of the barriers that are preventing them from, you know, finding an ideal housing situation for them, whether that's their own house, um, for their family, whether it's staying with roommates. So we really do get at a full variety of um, kind of facts that, that really paint a picture of what's, what's happening with people who are experiencing homelessness. And that information, we're going to start releasing that um, kind of uh, probably mid-May. It takes a little bit longer to really dig in to the survey data and to really start to understand what's going on at that level of detail. But we absolutely do have that information. And then that was my question. Now that we've, um, or I should say you folks have gathered um, all the data, where do we go from here? I guess when it comes to like policy and making changes, do we just do this and then share it with, um, you know, other organizations and groups to try to tackle some of these problems? Yeah, absolutely. So the, ro- the role that Wilder Research plays is we you know, really are kind of the dealing with the logistics and making it happen. But we know that and the reason that we work with so many amazing partners, both in planning for the study and conducting the study, is those partner organizations are really the ones who are going to be able to take this data and, you know, make a change that's going to impact the lives of people who are experiencing homelessness as well as people who are experiencing, um, you know, just general housing instability. So, you know, we, that can be anyone from, you know, people who are on the ground as housing service providers, so they can take this data and use it to write grants to get additional resources to support the work that they're doing, um, all the way up to the state level where there are planners looking at it and, you know, saying, you know, what are we seeing, why is this happening, and really using that to inform actions to make it better. All right. Well, lots of good information. Was there anything else you wanted to hit on today that I didn't bring up? I would just say overall, you know, the it really is a co- huge collaborative effort. We end up having, you know, 1,200 volunteers that help make this possible. Um, by doing the interviews, we end up working with around 400 either or- organizations or people who are, you know, coordinating interview sites. We have a variety of funders that, you know, want to support this work and also a number of planning partners. So it's definitely uh, a collaborative effort. And while, you know, we're putting this information out today, it wouldn't be possible without them. And and a lot of them are going to be the ones that really take it and run with it and um, make changes. Thanks again to my guest, Rebecca Sales, a research scientist at Wilder Research. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The 2019 Twins season is underway and hopes are relatively high. Sports Illustrated this week tabbed the Twins as a surprise pick to win the American League Central Division. Aaron Gleeman is based in Minneapolis and is a writer and editor for Baseball Prospectus and the host of a baseball podcast. He follows the Twins closely and joins MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm for a season preview. So let's start. Just give us your general thoughts on the 2019 Minnesota Twins. I mean, the biggest storyline, I think, is they have a new manager. Uh, they turned over a lot of the team via free agency and some guys, some key contributors walking. But the, I think the biggest storyline is the 
the idea that will these young guys, Buxton, Sano, but also Kepler, also Polanco, also some guys on the pitching side, will they bounce back or take a step forward, at least maybe half of them, to reestablish themselves as building blocks? Because if people remember back to late 2017, it looked like they had 10 young players going to lead them to the playoffs you know, every year for the next decade. It looked like those early, early garden hire teams, you know, 2.0. And then we saw last year, for the most part, all those guys kind of crash back down to earth with performance and injury. So I think that's probably the biggest storyline. But within the division, you know, if the Twins can get to sort of slightly above average, which they were two years ago when they won 85 games and they got the second wild card, there's a sense, I think, growing that the Cleveland Indians are a little more vulnerable than they've been the last two or three years. And so if the Indians take half a step back and the Twins take a step forward, you might actually have some competition in the division. Buxton has always answered the bell at almost every stint in the minor leagues. Yes. Outside of, was it late 2017 yep. when he was really good? He hasn't done much, That's right. either injury or underperformance. What, 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 where, where is he? I think the injury with him is key. I mean, we saw if he's healthy, he's the best center fielder in baseball. He's the fastest, best base dealer in baseball. That's not even in question. The question is, can you just keep him on the field? And then secondary to that, can he be a consistent enough hitter that he can hit 260 instead of 220? Because uh, we've seen he can hit 15, 20 homers. He's a guy who can hit doubles and triples. You get him on the bases, he can you know go crazy and make the pitchers go nuts too. The key is, can he stay on the field for 140 games? And can he have consistent enough at-bats to where he's not going through these two-for-40 stretches at the plate? With 30 strikeouts. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, like you said, he's a guy who hit 300-plus at basically every level in the minors, and he's shown it for short stints in the majors. With Sano, I think it's a different story. I mean, we've seen – he's already been an all-star. I mean, we've seen the type of damage he can do in the middle of a lineup. The unfortunate thing was, I mean, he just had a disaster of a 2018 season on and off the field. They told him, get in better shape and play winter ball. And he dropped like 20, 25 pounds, and he played winter ball, and his team won the winter ball championship. And then on stage in the trophy presentation, he suffers a heel injury, and now he's going to miss, it sounds like, all of April. And then as we saw with Irvin Santana last year, you never know how these odd injuries will drag on throughout the season. And so that, I think, is the most unfortunate thing, is there was a chance for those two guys especially to at least kind of start with a clean slate health-wise at the beginning of the season. And now you're going to see that from Buxton, and we're just kind of waiting again for Sano to do the same thing. Nelson Cruz, who will hit a bunch of home runs, you hope. Uh, C.J. Crone, we'll see what uh, comes out of him. And Jonathan Scope at second base. Give me your assessment on those three. All three of those guys are 30-plus homer guys, right-handed hitters, and I think they've determined a couple things. One is target field, if you hit the ball down the left field line, like Josh Willingham did and Brian Dozier did, you can hit a bunch of homers there. It's a lot harder if you're a lefty to hit it into right center, as we've seen. Those balls die or they go for doubles or they bang off the wall. Yep. So I think that the Twins have determined, let's just get a bunch of pull hitters like Nelson Cruz, who's hit one of the longest home runs I was there at, at target field. He hit, a, I would say, approximately 1,000 feet <laughs> by my estimate. And then the other thing I think they determined is, as bullpens in baseball change, there's going to be a lot less late-inning matchups. And so you're putting in a right-handed hitter there, building your lineup around many more right-handed hitters, partly because Maurer's gone. But the Twins have, have passed with Jock Jones and Mankiewicz and Corey Koski. They were so left-handed. Now I think the team is more right-handed, in part because of the ballpark and in part because I think they've just determined you can do more damage late in innings, uh, not having to worry about a left-handed reliever coming and shutting someone down. With that said, those are the veteran guys, but then you have guys like Kepler, who's one of the biggest keys to the whole season, Mm -hmm. who's a left-handed hitter, and Polanco, who's a switch hitter. So they do have some balance, but it is probably the most right-handed heavy and the most power-dominant 
uh, Twins lineup that I can remember. Aaron Gleeman with us here on Minnesota Matters. I I guess if I was to have a criticism, is that they didn't do much with the pitching staff right. this offseason. And there are, I mean, there's still guys out there that could be signed. What's your thought? That I agree completely. That was my not only criticism, but it seemed confusing to me. Why go out? All the guys we just mentioned mm-hmm. and a few more from the the hitting side. You signed four or five good hitters. You, the lineup to me looks, you know, pretty good, pretty deep. Maybe top five in the American League. And then all you did on the pitching side, which arguably needed more help to begin with, is Martin Perez as your fifth starter and Blake Parker as a as a middle reliever. Uh, there, you know, Craig Kimbrell's unsigned. Dallas Keuchel. The Twins apparently were not in the mix. They're they're certainly sending the message to players and fans and media. We believe in the minor league guys that we have on hand. We believe in the new pitching coach, Wes Johnson, and all the analytics and technology that they've invested in that we can turn you know, some of these minor league guys, like let's say Steven Gonzalez, for instance, nobody was that impressed with him. Nobody has high hopes for him right now, but for whatever reason, they think we can add some velocity, we can get him throwing a better off-speed pitch, and we can turn him into the type of guy that you would spend big money in in free agency. And they've set it up so that if the bullpen's even decent, they look like geniuses. Uh, if they blow four or five leads in April, it's not going to take a whole lot of you know analytical effort to basically say, yeah, the bullpen stinks. Mm-hmm. They didn't sign anybody for the bullpen. Why are we surprised? Tell us all about the stuff you're doing. I know you uh, have some pre uh, a preseason uh, guide that uh, people can get as well. Well, first of all, Gleeman and the Geek, you can download. It's a weekly podcast I do with, with John Bonus. You can get on iTunes or wherever else you get pod, uh, podcasts. And then also, if you're into Twins Prospects, I have a new ebook where I do scouting reports on the top 40 prospects plus a whole bunch of essays. There's even one that's all about what we just talked about, which is Can Max Kepler Become a Star? Uh, and you can get that for five bucks from me there's details on my twitter account which is at aaron gleeman on twitter awesome great appreciate it no anytime all right that's aaron gleeman from baseball prospectus with mnn sports director mike grimm minnesota matters returns after this you my friend have connections in the government yes you usa.gov the official source for government information on thousands of topics and like any good connection there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. As we enter a period of prime spring weather, sappers across the state with bucket and tap in hand trudge into the woods to take part in the Northwoods pastime of maple syrup production. Reporter J.W. Cox spoke with Chris Ransom, the president of the Minnesota Maple Syrup Producers Association, to get the full story on this sweet springtime activity. Ransom started by noting the turn of the calendar to the months of March and April can generally bring about the best tree tapping weather you could hope for. What you look for in maple production, to sap starts flowing when the temperatures are above freezing during the day and below freezing at night, and you look for cycles of that. 
where it goes on for several days in a row, and it might warm up, it might get cold, um, then the, the sap stops flowing when that happens typically, and then once the cycle starts, it goes again until the trees start to bud in yeah, three to four weeks after that starts, maybe five, maybe six, and then the sap stops flowing and you're done for the season. With those conditions, the commercial footprint of Minnesota maple syrup producers does exist, but not as large as competitors to the east. Minnesota is one of about, oh, I'd say 19 states that are, are made up of the, the, that make up the North American Maple Syrup Council, NAMSC. If you look at all of the commercial production in the U.S. anyway, Minnesota probably makes up less than 1% of all commercial production. Um, my perception of the history is that it's not as, as well entrenched as it is out in the eastern states like Vermont, New Hampshire, um, New York, Maine, where they've been doing it for centuries. The people that came here I don't think were as aware of maple um, in the state, and plus we have fewer maple trees than um, out, out east typically. Ransom can be counted among those who take to the woods each spring, doing so not far from the heart of the Twin Cities metro. I tap trees in Vadnais Heights, which is just north of St. Paul. Um, I tap about 60 trees between my property and my neighbor's properties. And, and friends do come over. I do it mostly by myself, but it's friends and a, you know, a couple family members will come over occasionally and help out. And I did it because I read an article in, in I think, the Minneapolis paper a number of years ago, 15, 16 years ago, about a friend of mine up on the North Shore who is making maple syrup. And he's a friend that I had graduated from high school with, and I thought that was interesting. So I asked a few other people about that and they said, yeah, yeah, we knew he made syrup and so do we. And I said, you make it. Then I discovered I had a bunch of sugar maple trees on my property. So I tapped about five of them and the next year I did 10. The next year was 20. The next year was 40. And it just sort of a hobby that got out of control. The question of why seemed a simple question to ask Ransom, and he had a simple answer to give. I think it's being outdoors, just part of nature and watching um, spring come alive and the winter is ending and you get to be outdoors and, and just watch nature unfold in front of you and you're, you're participating in a, a unique agricultural process that doesn't last very long. It's pretty fleeting. And some years it's very short. Some years it's very long. And um, um, so you're just being outdoors and participating. And a lot of people turn it into a family event. As for the science of sapping? The most common maples to use for, for syrup production are sugar maples. Um, but you can also get it from black maples. A lot of people use silver maples. Box elder trees can actually are a maple tree, and you can get sap from them too. You don't get as long of a season out of them, and they typically have a lower sugar content in the in the sap. Some benchmarks that are out there: sap is typically about two percent sugar content, so it's ninety-eight percent water. Only two percent of it is sugar. At that ratio, typically, I think someone just using buckets to to gather sap would maybe get 
10 gallons of sap out of every tap that they put in. Ransom had a jumping off point from his own experience that can be used by those looking to join them in the hobby. It came, though, with a humorous word of caution. First steps I took is I read an awful lot. I got a, a book called Backyard Sugaring by Rink Mann. One thing one of our members is fond of saying is that if, if you want to make a small fortune in maple syrup, take a large fortune and invest it in a maple syrup operation. Scott, I'll get the tap, you get the bucket, I'll meet you at the tree. Sounds good to me, JW. I'll meet you there. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.